Well, good morning, everybody. Let me uh, pray for us before we uh, read together. Father, we ask now uh, that what we sang earlier uh, would definitely be true, that your spirit would come and breathe through us and renew our hearts and our wills and our minds, that you'd be happy to use this word that we're going to read together and think about and talk about together to change the way that we think about things, to change the things that we love, and to change the things that we do with our hands our life in this world. Father, it's a lot to ask (laughs) that you would do that, but that's the promise of your word that points us to the word incarnate, Jesus, our elder brother. Show us his grace and change us by it. And we pray it in his name. Amen. We've been uh, reading Paul's letter to the Galatian church together this fall, and the part of the letter that we're going to look at this morning is a little longer than we usually take in a week. It also happens to be uh, a little uh, hard to understand in places, so I'm going to do my best to make it clear. And I think it would also be helpful, before we even read it, to remember why Paul wrote the whole letter uh, in the first place. So here's why Paul wrote it. It's just a reminder, if you've been with us, that some folks had come into Galatia after Paul had founded the church there, and they had seen the young Christians there, and they said to those young Christians, hey, you've made an okay start at being Christian. Uh, You're doing okay. We like what we see. But in order to be really pleasing to God, uh, in order to really grow up in your faith, you need more, more than just the faith that you have. In particular, you need to follow some parts of the Old Testament law. If you do that, then you will be all set as Christians. And Paul wrote this letter to tell his friends again and again that that is absolutely not true. All right, so I'm going to read from Galatians 3 for us. I'm going to read verses 10 through 29. You can follow along where it's printed in the order of worship or in a Bible. Or you can just listen as I read from Galatians 3. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? 
It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that Christ has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Well, I I drive a pretty old car. It is uh, 18 years old, in fact, but I like it. I'm fond of it. I don't want to give it up for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, But as you might guess, it is uh, showing its age. Um, It smells like gas, for one thing, like a lawnmower, which I'm pretty sure is a significant problem. Um, my mechanic told me how much he thought it would take to fix that problem. He also told me I could just get used to the smell, and so I've chosen to just get used to the smell. Uh, there's another thing that's wrong with the car, and that is that the, the passenger side rear view mirror is broken. I mean, the mirror itself is intact, but it just flops around in the housing. That mirror has been like that for about a decade. Um, For the first seven years or so, I just went without it, which is surprisingly easy to do once you figure out how to drive without a rearview mirror. But when someone uh, would borrow my car, they'd always give me a hard time about it. So about three years ago, I had this idea. Uh, I took a piece of of foam weather-stripping tape, and I just wedged it in between the housing and the mirror, and now it's stuck in place. Now, I think it's it's perfect. But, of course, it only works for me. It only works for someone who's my height, who sits exactly where I do in the car because it's stuck in place. It's not that helpful at all for anyone else who might drive my car, which leads me, of course, to admit that it is not really the right fix for the problem. Neither is getting used to the smell of gas. That's not the right fix to that problem either. And I mention these things because this is precisely what Paul is trying to say to his friends about the law that God had given his people in the Old Testament passage, in that part of the letter that we just read together, he is saying, it is not the right fix for what you want. They want to know God. They want to be known by him. They want to know that they are forgiven. They want to know that they are his children. They want to be able to call God Father. They want to be able to rely on God as Father and do that without any hesitation, without any pause. These are the things that I want for me, that I want for all of us, too, as a church. And so Paul wants us to know that the law was never meant to do those things for us. It is not the right fix for what we want. 
it is not the right fix for what we need. So this is what Paul is getting at when, in verse 10, he says that everyone who relies on works of the law are under a curse. He says, but you don't have to take my word for it. He quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26, which is at the end of this beautiful antiphonal liturgy that Moses himself led the people through after they had heard the law restated. That line said, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So it's obvious, Paul says, it's so obvious that no one is justified by God before God by the law. It's his way of appealing to common sense. No one keeps the law of God perfectly. We all fail at it. It's like we heard in the Old Testament lesson. The psalmist says, God, you should answer me from your faithfulness and from your righteousness because I don't stand with, without guilt in front of you. There's no one who's righteous in front of you. And here's the thing, church. The, the law itself acknowledged that to be true. The law never thought that it would be anything more than it was. I mean, the tabernacle, the temple, all of the sacrifices that happened there, they weren't for the sake of spectacle. They were there for people who broke the law, who needed to be reconciled, who needed to be restored, who need to be forgiven. And, of course, we embody that. We inhabit that every life, here, every week, here together at Sunday on Sundays when we practice confession and assurance. I mean, those things aren't in our service because we need to fill some time. They're there because people like you and me, we need it because we fail in love and we need to be forgiven and restored and, and revived and made new. And all Paul's saying is the law can't do that job. It was never meant to do that job. Now, it's really important to understand that even though the law can't do that job, that doesn't make the law bad. It doesn't make the law uh, some negative intrusion into our lives. It doesn't make us this thing that we've been given to make sure we never have any fun or to suck all the joy out of life. It is the opposite, in fact. Church, the moral aspects of God's law teach us how to be human in this world. They aren't an intrusion into freedom. They are a roadmap to being human in a world that is filled with chaotic, conflicting, and often violent alternatives to being human. It shows us how to live best in the grain of the world. Let me try to give you an example of what I mean. A couple of years ago in downtown Montreal, there was this crazy slow motion traffic pileup. Maybe some of you saw it. You can look it up later on YouTube. Don't look it up now. Um, what happened was there was this patch of ice at the top of a hill. And as cars or trucks or whatever would hit that patch of ice, they would just start sliding slowly, uncontrollably, until they just ended up in a pile at the bottom of a hill. There was nothing any car that hit that ice could do. And in the end, in a couple of minutes, a bunch of cars, seven, eight cars, two buses, a truck, a police car, ironically, a snow plow, they all hit that piece of ice. And then they got in this huge pile in the bottom of the hill. All right, so what would have helped in that situation? A sign 
right? A sign 200 feet before that patch of ice that just said, hey, there's ice ahead. Stop. Or you'll end up in a pile at the bottom of the hill. If there was a sign like that, a lot of hassle and chaos and danger and wreckage could have been avoided. And church, God's moral law is like that sign. It is a sign written in love by someone who knows us, by someone who knows the rest of the created order intimately, who knows how humans are made to work, how we are made to flourish. It's written by someone who knows where all of the things that bring us harm and pain and shame are lurking. I need a sign like that in my life. (laughs) We all need signs like that in our life. And part of growing up in the faith is seeing God's law like that in our lives and welcoming it and being grateful for it. But they are just signs. And no sign has ever given anyone the power, the courage, the fortitude, whatever. No sign has ever given anyone the power to obey what's written on it. That's what Paul is saying is so evident. That's what he is saying is just so obvious. Signs don't make us live. The law doesn't make us alive. It can't. It doesn't justify us before God. It's not the right fix for that. So Paul says in verse 13, here's the fix. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This is the heart of our faith. He steps in and takes the blame. And by his wounds, we are healed. And we grab hold of that fix and we cling to it by faith in Jesus. As Paul says, quoting the the Old Testament prophet, prophet Habakkuk, the righteous live by faith. So he's been underlining this again and again. He's been saying faith is the thing that matters. And so he moves next to what he calls a human example. In verses 15 through 18, he says, you know how it is with human covenants. No one annuls them. No one changes them after they've been ratified. And in bringing this up, Paul is alluding to something he's written earlier, that part of the letter that Pastor Dan walked us through last week where Paul talked about Abraham. He reminded his friends at Galatia that God had declared Abraham righteous simply because he had faith, simply because he believed God. His point was and continues to be that what mattered to God was faith long before, hundreds of years before the law had ever come onto the scene through Moses. So here's how that example that Paul gives gives works. He's saying, look, if humans don't change it, you know God isn't going to change it. The law does not annul this covenant that was previously given, this promise that God gave to Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world through your family, through your offspring, Jesus. And Paul's just saying that isn't void because the law came. Abraham clung to it by faith, and the coming of the law through Moses didn't change that. So at this point, Paul thinks, well, his readers and maybe us were thinking, okay, well, if that's true, Paul, then what was the point of God giving his people the law through Moses? 
why then the law? I mean, if we grab hold of the promises that God makes to us by faith alone and not by keeping the law, then isn't the law just this really confusing, strange part of the story of God's people? Is the law contrary, as Paul says, to the promises of God? And these are great, great, great questions, I think. Not just for those Galatian people to ask in the first century, but for people like you and me to ask too. So this might sound absurd, um, but hopefully you'll get what I mean. I want you to imagine if this happened when I was fixing uh, the mirror on my car, okay? And I took that piece of foam weather stripping tape and I started to unspool it and somehow that that tape became animated (laughs) and as I was using it to fix my mirror the tape said to me you know I'm not supposed to be used for this right (laughs) I'm supposed to go in your house around the windows and doors to keep you warm I'm not supposed to fix cars okay so that would be really surprising if the tape spoke to me (laughs) But he would also, or she, (laughs) would be right. That's not what it's there for. It has a good use. It has something that it was intended for. And so these questions that Paul asks enable him to talk about the good and useful purposes of the law that God gave to his people through Moses. It enables Paul to begin to say, well, this is the place that it played in the story of God's people. What's it there for? Well, I'll tell you what it's there for. Now, I already mentioned one of the reasons. I already anticipated it when I said before that the law is a roadmap for how to be human in this world. That's not what Paul mentions here, but he does elsewhere in Romans, and the Psalms talk about it all the time. Here, Paul mentions two reasons, two things, two roles that the law played in the life of God's people. The first is in verse 19. He says the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring could come to whom the promise had been made. And then he says a little bit differently, the same thing, but just a little differently in verses 22 and 23. He says, Scripture imprisoned everything under sin and we were held captive under the law. I think that what Paul is saying is that one of the things that the law did, one of the roles that it had in the life of God's people, was to act as a restraint. You know, the, the ancient cultures that lived around God's people, I mean, their violence, their incredibly dehumanizing way of life is very evident and well-known. <laughs> But then there was this really strange people that had a law from their God. And right in the midst of all of this chaos and all of this violence and all of this dehumanization, there was a people who had been told, don't take human life because it's sacred. They had been told, don't steal. Tell the truth to one another. When the poor need help, help them. When the stranger comes into your midst, care for them. Care for the widows in your community. And in that chaotic, violent world, the law served as a restraint. And where it was practiced, that community flourished in peace 
and injustice. <laughs> it was beautiful. One uh, writer, N.T. Wright, says that the law in this way served, it was like a kind of a temporary quarantine. It kept God's people safe until the cure could be delivered, until the offspring to whom the promise was made could come, until Jesus could come and take the sickness on himself and give us the cure of forgiveness and restoration. Like he says uh, in the gospel lesson that we heard this morning, until he could lay down his life for the sheep. And Paul doesn't want his friends to go back to the quarantine. He doesn't want his friends to go back into the prison. It would be absurd to do that because there's no need for that now that the cure has arrived. Now, I got to say this. Paul will come back to this later. Uh, in the letter in chapter 5, but i got to say something about it now because it's not as if you and I don't need a little restraint from time to time. <laughs> I mean, if we're being honest, sometimes we need a lot of restraint to keep us from the sin that hurts us and hurts the people around us. And this is what's so beautiful about life after the cure has come. We don't get that restraint from something outside of us anymore. We have, as God's people, the spirit inside of us, in our hearts. We have the breath of God moving in us by his spirit, leading people like you and me into life and into health and away from pain and shame and hurt. This is the fruit of the spirit that Paul is going to tell his friends about later, and we'll get to it later. But for now, it is good to be reminded that learning to listen for the Spirit, learning to walk in the way that He is leading us, is an important part of you and me growing up in our faith. So the law, Paul says, served this purpose to restrain things until Jesus could come. And now he mentions a second role that the law played in the life of God's people. It's in verse 24. He says the law was our guardian until Christ came. Now, the word that is Paul uses for guardian is the word that in the first century referred to the person and was usually a slave who was assigned to care for the kids in the family. The guardian took them to school and back. The guardian took care of them and made sure they were safe whenever the kids were outside of the house. The guardian fed them meals. The guardian taught them basic rules for life, taught them manners. The guardian was usually a beloved member of the family, the the au pair, the babysitter, the nanny. But as beautiful as that role was that the law played for God's people, it's not needed anymore. Because now Paul says, you've grown up. As Paul puts it, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian He's just reiterating what he said so many times, what we have heard again and again, that knowing the grace of Jesus, that experiencing the grace of Jesus through faith is enough, and it will always be enough to make you and I into the people that we were created to be. We do not need anything else. But how? How, Paul? How does faith in Jesus make us into God's grown-up children? And the answer that comes back, like I said earlier... It's one of the most distinctive and beautiful and mysterious ways that Paul talks about our faith. 
He says, for as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So now there's neither Jew nor Greek. There isn't slave or free. There's no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. He's saying in faith we put on Christ We put on Jesus. And so now all of the old ways of gaining status or gaining power, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, culture, class, gender, whatever else you can put in there, all those old ways become irrelevant as means of measurement. They become irrelevant as means of gaining status and clout because we have been wrapped up together into Jesus. (laughs) Who is Jesus? The fully mature, fully wise, fully beloved Son of God. And church, by faith, we now share His life. By faith, what is true of Him is true of us. And church, you could think about that forever. And never get to the bottom of it. (laughs) But it would be really good to try. Because people who believe this, and not I mean believe it, not just like it's a thing out there to believe and assent to, but believe it in the way that we love and in the way that we live with our whole selves. People who believe that their identity is wrapped up in Jesus, they are grateful, free, people. The theologian John Calvin talked about this, I think, in some really beautiful ways. This, this is how he talked about being wrapped up in Jesus' identity. And I'll just let his words be our end to this. This is what he said. Whatever is his may be called ours. This is the wonderful exchange which out of his measureless benevolence he has made with us. That in becoming son of man with us, he has made us sons of God with him. That by his descent to earth, he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us. That by taking on our mortality, He has conferred his immortality on us. Accepting our weakness, he has strengthened us by his power. That receiving our poverty into himself, he has transferred his wealth to us. That taking the weight of our iniquity upon himself, which oppressed us, he has clothed us with his righteousness. Let me pray for us. Father, whatever it is that you need to do to make us into a people who believe this, not as some truth that's floating out there, but deeply inside of every part of who we are, help your people to believe that this is true. To believe in the wonderful exchange that our identities have been wrapped up in your son and that makes us your loved children. Do this so that we will be free, set free to gratefully live lives of love and service in this world. 
Father, do this for our good and do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.